Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, welcome to New Books in Medicine. I'm Dana Greenfield, a new host for the channel. I'm a medical anthropologist, also completing my medical degree at the University of California, San Francisco. As your host, I plan to highlight new books from the medical social sciences and humanities. I'm really excited to begin this series with an interview with physician and anthropologist Carolyn Suffren. Dr. Suffren is an obstetrician and gynecologist at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. However, from 2007 to 2013, she worked at the San Francisco jail where she started a women's health clinic. It was there that she decided to pursue a PhD in anthropology to help her understand what it meant to provide medical care within an ostensibly punitive space. Her work is situated overall at the intersection of reproductive justice, healthcare, and mass incarceration. In her new book, Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars, she charts the experience of caregivers and patient prisoners in the very jail clinic she helped to establish. Today, we talk about her new book, how she charted this unique path, and how becoming an anthropologist deepened her clinical practice and advocacy for women entangled in the carceral system. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine. I'm Dana Greenfield, the host of the channel. And today we'll be talking to Carolyn Suffren about her new book, Jail Care, Finding the Safety Net for Women Behind Bars. And Carolyn Suffren is an anthropologist and a physician, specifically an an obstetrician gynecologist. Uh, So Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dana. I was wondering if we could just start by you telling us a bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and how you became to be a physician and an anthropologist. 
So I grew up in Buffalo, New York, um, and uh, had my formative years there in sort of a the Rust Belt uh, town of Buffalo. And um, and then I went off to college where I ended up um, starting out as pre-med, um, a little bit by default. There are actually quite a few physicians in my family, and so I was always exposed to um, to professionals in medicine and sort of unintentionally noticed that I was taking pre-med classes. Um, and as I was, as I was doing this, um, I then took my first anthropology class in college. Um, this was at Amherst College. And the first anthropology class I took was, was called the Anthropo Anthropological Perspectives on Gender. And it was this course that was really pivotal, I think, in setting me along this path, um, because it was, it introduced me to a whole new world view and a new way of thinking. Um, not only about gender, but also um, actually about medicine and science um, and helped me understand through the lens of, of culture and what culture means that, that medicine and science are themselves cultures and part of uh, Western culture as well. And so this set me on a path of um, early on of combining my interests in medicine and in anthropology. Um, so after I graduated from college, I did decide to continue to pursue my, my interest in medicine, and I went to medical school. Um, I graduated from medical school, um, although somewhere along the way I, I continued to feel the pull t towards anthropology and took time off and, and got a master's degree in anthropology, um, and then went on to do my residency training in obstetrics and gynecology. And... <clears throat> It was um, it, residency in general is uh, can be a very demanding time, um, and that is true for obstetrics and gynecology. Um, and there was one, there was another pivotal moment um, in during my residency training, which again um, sort of steered me along this this path. And that was a moment when I was on call one night as a first year resident, and. I was getting ready to help deliver the baby of a woman in labor, which is what I did a lot um, and, and I, what I still do. Um, and when you're a first-year resident in obstetrics and you're, you're about to deliver a baby, um, there's kind of one thing that's at the forefront of your mind, which is don't drop the baby. And um, that was certainly, you know, as a, as a young nervous physician, one of the things going through my mind. But there was something different about this birth. Um, which is that the the woman in labor was shackled to the bed, and I found this deeply troubling. I'm sure not at not even close to how troubling it was for the woman herself, but I had never conceived of the fact that as a physician this would be something I would confront, um, and it made me realize I'd never thought about the fact that there were incarcerate women who were incarcerated, let alone pregnant women, and it made me question what we're doing as a society, um, why is this woman in labor, um, in chains, what was my own role and complicity in all of this. And so this moment, this clinical experience, opened up for me a whole Pandora's box, um, and I felt compelled to learn more and to try to help this, um, this group of, of women. Um, and it was also a moment where, again, I felt the pull towards anthropology, and I felt that um, the tools of anthropology that I had learned as an undergraduate and in my master's degree of thinking about power dynamics and um, the culture of medicine, um, the culture of, of cultures of violence and, and, um, and how systems of control work, um, all of these things um, 
really came to came to bear on how I was experiencing this as a healthcare provider taking care of this incarcerated woman. So that that moment as a resident really helped steer me along my path and eventually when I was finished with my with my residency training um which was in Pennsylvania I moved out to California to San Francisco where I continued my specialty training in in family planning but I it also was a time when I had the opportunity to explore my interests in um caring for incarcerated women and I started working uh initially just volunteering and doing some research um but working at the San Francisco County Jail um I sort of sought out that opportunity and I um soon learned that this was an extremely compelling place to practice medicine and um you know after just a few months few months of being a physician in this space I I really was just struck by so many contradictions and complexities and so for instance here I was a physician my my job was to provide compassionate care that's that's my fundamental charge as a as a physician um and I was yet I was doing so in a space that's designed to punish people and so I thought about what does that mean to care in a space of punishment what I also observed was that for so many of my patients um most of them were i i i hadn't expected them to be um to be bad people i i sort of already went in with the sense that the reasons they were in the criminal legal system had a lot to do with um with broader social and structural factors but nonetheless meeting them and hearing their stories really really struck me especially the women and how um their lives were so much uh, so many of them their lives were characterized by poverty by histories of sexual and physical abuse by untreated mental illness um by homelessness um so many things that um really didn't make these women criminals um but nonetheless they were sort of trapped in the criminal legal system and what i learned from them is that for many of them jail was the main place where they got healthcare they had difficulty accessing healthcare in the community And then another um another contradiction that I observed or something that surprised me was that um I had certain I think stereotypes and expectations of the people who would work behind bars that perhaps they would be overly harsh and abusive. And while certainly I did observe some of that behavior, um I also interacted with other other staff members, healthcare staff and and correctional staff um who showed kindness to the incarcerated women. and that also surprised me and then finally i also learned um that not only were some some of my patients not only was jail sort of the only place where they were getting healthcare but that there was actually in some ways a, a legal constitutional basis to this and i i learned about the the fact that um due to a supreme court case in 1976 incarcerated people have a constitutional right to healthcare and in fact are the only people in our country country with a constitutional right to healthcare. And I found this very interesting and um and very contradictory in a way. You know, you you get ar- arrested and you go to prison or jail and part of the punishment is that you get most of your rights taken away from you and yet you gain this right to healthcare that you don't have in the free world. So with all of these contradictions that I began observing from the perspective of a caregiver in jail, this is what compelled me to return to anthropology. um and to to fe- I felt the need to um to learn more and to apply the tools of anthropology to understand the bigger picture 
of what was going on um, in this in this jail, um, but also what that would tell us about society and about mass incarceration and, and public health and healthcare more broadly. So that's that's a bit of a summary of, of my path and how I got from Buffalo, New York, to the San Francisco jail in the streets of San Francisco. Um, and it's punctuated by moments where um, several pivotal moments, especially where being a clinician and providing patient care um, gave rise to to very troubling and deep um, social, moral, and ethical questions. Yeah, that that's uh, a great summary um, and an incredible story. Uh, and full disclosure, listeners, um, both Carolyn and I actually have very similar paths. We both grew up in Buffalo, New York, and ended up in anthropology um, in San Francisco. And are, I'm also trying to become a physician anthropologist. And I think something that we all share is this ambivalence towards medicine as a an institution that wields a lot of power um, and a lot of ambiguity arises in that space in caring for patients um, in such situations. And I'm wondering, how did you maintain practicing medicine in such a place? Um, It seems like a really hard position to be in, um, wielding that power that you have while also caring for people. That's a very good question, and it's something that I thought about a lot, um, I struggled with, um, and is not something that I ever resolved, um, other than in the sense to note that I should continue to struggle with it. And I'll give some examples of how that came up. Um, you know, I when I, I first started working at the jail, I I was I was unsure of my position. I, I went in with, you know, with a, a sense, although I didn't know much about the daily realities of mass incarceration and, its, and the contemporary forms of, of incarceration in the United States, um, I did go in with a sense that there were tremendous inequalities in our criminal legal system and that our, our incarceration system is broken. And so I did go in with a little bit of a critical eye. And um, yet I also recognized that I was going into a jail to work. And so to some degree, I was, I was part of the system. So for me, it wasn't only that I was part of the institution of medicine, um, which you know, is both caring and healing, but also, as you said, wields a lot of power and can, um, and can sometimes be a little bit constraining at the same time that it cares. So not only was I part of that and, and sort of already scripted in that Um, that position of power, but I was also scripted as being part of a system um, of which I was simultaneously critical. And I, at the beginning, um, you know, really tried to, or I didn't try, I I saw myself as separate. I said, well, you know, I'm, yes, I'm going inside a jail, but I'm in the, the clinical wing of the jail. And that's this nested space where, you know, it's doctors and patients and healthcare providers, and um, I don't judge these women for the fact that they are in jail, um, and, you know, and I'm going to do what I can to treat them uh, as I would any other patient with respect and dignity. Um, and, of course, I absolutely did that, and I continue to do that, um, and, you know, that was something that I really held on to. 
But what I didn't realize at, at first was that it didn't matter that I was critical of, you know, of the, of the system of incarceration, that most of these women are there for nonviolent charges and um, probably would be better served through community programs like mental health care and addiction treatment. That, my critical stance didn't matter because to my patients, um, they just, they still saw me as, as a doctor who worked in the jail. And certainly once they got to know me and they, they, um, you know, they appreciated how I, I treated them, but even so, they, I was still part of the jail. I was part of the jail system. And that was, um, a difficult position to be in, um, given the ambiguity that I felt about my, my own role in that. And, I, for instance, um, you know, at the, especially at the beginning when I was new in the jail, a lot of patients came to me, um, well, they came to me for health care, um, but a lot of them would, would, I shouldn't say a lot, some of them would try to ask for additional things. Um, and in jail, daily life um, is overly medicalized. What I mean by that is things that you and I take for granted in the free world that we can easily access, that seem to have nothing to do directly with medical care, things like ice, um, uh, or if you happen to be near a bunk bed, a bottom, having a bottom bunk. These things become items that require um, a clinician's prescription when you're in jail because jail is an uh, environment of relative deprivation, and so it becomes a special privilege. And um, so a, a doctor would have to write a prescription for someone to have medically indicated ice. So we did this for pregnant women to encourage them to hydrate. We did this for menopausal women who were having hot flashes, someone who had an injury, you know, they had a swollen ankle or something, but you had to have a prescription for ice. Well, people would, because they knew I was a new person, some people would come to me asking for for extra things um, that perhaps they didn't need. And I, I, I sort of could could filter through some of that, um, but I saw it as my own little act of subversion to give people whatever they asked for, um, whatever they asked for within reason that was, you know, on the outside, not a prescription <laughs> medication um, as well. Um, and I, I soon realized, though, that that, that strategy had consequences um, in the housing units and, and it created... Um, strife among the women, the people who knew to, to come to me, the pushover doctor, and the people who didn't. And, um, you know, so then I realized that I had to adapt a little bit more to the environment in ways that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and so I would say that um, for me, the ambiguity was not only about my, my position as someone who our society has, has you know, given all kinds of of um, power and cultural capital to, but also my own complicity in the jail system um, and in the system of mass incarceration as someone who was trying to provide patients inside jail with compassionate care, um, but in doing so, you know, am I am I sustaining a system that I that I'm critical of? Yeah, that's uh, it. Seems like a lot to have to maneuver and take in. It sounds like it probably evolved over time and how you dealt with it. Um, I'm wondering, when did you shift from being a doctor in the jail to an anthropologist? And how did that change how you moved through and experienced the jail uh, and the women who were there? That's a really good question. And 
I don't think I can pinpoint one point in time, um, although I can point to certain um, moments and, and certain sh subtle shifts. Um, because I would say first, I, I, I started off um, as a physician with an anthropological view of the world. And so I think I, I already brought some of that with me into how I, I engaged with patients and with the jail right from the start. Um, and that's, you know, again, what gave rise to my noticing all of these contradictions and nuances within the first few months of being a, a physician in a jail. And so then it was those first few months, as I mentioned, of feeling those, those contradictions, which I, I think I, I was able to be especially attuned to because of my, my view, my worldview as an anthropologist. But it was then that these things that prompted me then to formally, um, go back and, um, you know, establish my, reestablish my formal anthropological training. And so I, I started my, uh, PhD studies in anthropology after I had been working at the jail um, for about two years. And, um, and so I was taking classes, um, but I was still being, and, and I was still working as a doctor at the same time. Um, and I wasn't doing anthropological research at this jail at that time. Um, and in fact, as I was envisioning the research project I would do for my dissertation, I, I assumed that I would go to a different jail or a different prison because I thought, well, that would be kind of tricky to do re anthropological research at a place where I was treating patients. And I did not, I, I did not want to give up my clinical practice at this particular jail. I found it so gratifying and so important and also, um, gave me so many insights that I wouldn't have gotten were I not practicing at another, gave me so many insights in, in general. And so, um, so I assumed I would go someplace else. And then I, um, I began to realize that, um, I would never have the kind of access and the kind of trust at any other jail or prison as I had at the San Francisco jail. And so I then sought out, um, uh, to figure out a path of doing research at this jail that was ethical, that was transparent, um, that was non-coercive, um, and, you know, that would allow me to navigate both of my roles while, while, um, while gleaning important anthropological insights. And so there was a point at which I did, um, sort of more formally adapt my, uh, adopt my identity as an anthropological researcher. And that was, I had been um, working as a physician at the jail for about um, a little over four years once I officially started my ethnographic fieldwork. And for those listeners who um, may not be as familiar with the methods of anthropology, of sociocultural anthropology and medical anthropology being a branch of that, the methods um, are uh, involve uh, what we sometimes say is just being, being there. And by that, what I mean is that there is um, intense observation. Um, you're talking to people. You're immersing yourself in a culture. Um, you're seeing um, who talks to whom, what doesn't get said, what are the gestures um, and activities. Um, how does it feel as you try to immerse yourself as part of this particular culture? And so that's when I, when I more formally deployed those, those skills and methods of anthropology, what we call ethnography, 
Um, that is, as I said, I had been working at the jail for about four and a half years. And for those listeners who are interested in what that actually looked like, um, I would just hang out at the jail in various spaces that included in um, the clinic waiting area of the jail. Um, I would talk to women as they were waiting to be seen by healthcare providers. I would observe interactions between um, the women themselves and, and healthcare providers. Um, I would spend a lot of time in the housing units observing daily life um, and nightly life. I spent some night shifts there. Um, I talked to I, I, I talked to the, the guards. Um, I spent time with them at their guard tower. I also spent time with the women in the, the spaces in the jail where, where they, they moved around. Um, I spent time in the booking jail as well. And then I also spent time with women when they got released and um, when they were on the streets in San Francisco, when they were in drug treatment programs, when they were visiting with their children. Um, so I, 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 it was a lot of time of, of interacting with people and talking to them, hearing their stories, but also observing um, how they live their lives and how people interact with each other. And so what was, what was a little bit tricky about doing that at the jail where I was also practicing as a physician is that I had to think about these dual roles. And at the beginning, I was very, well, throughout, I was, I really tried to be extremely intentional about compartmentalizing my roles. And that Mondays, which were the days I, I had clinic and saw patients, that was my doctor day. Um, and then on Tuesday through Sunday, I was an anthropologist, but I wasn't a doctor. I didn't see patients for any clinical care. Um, and I soon learned that um, despite my efforts, the people in the jail, both the people who worked there and the people who were incarcerated there, um, while they all knew that I was doing research, they weren't so concerned about compartmentalizing my roles. And so on Mondays, patients would come to see me for medical care, and when they got in the clinic room, they would say, you know, I have, I have something I want to tell you, and this one's for your book, Doc. And they would start to go into much greater detail about their lives than they might have otherwise. And then on Tuesday through Sunday, um, you know, while I was there, sometimes the nurses at the jail would ask for my opinion on something. Um, like I said, I was never directly providing clinical care on those days, but, um, but people still, you know, they couldn't turn off the fact that they knew I was a doctor. And so for me, um, what became important about navigating these dual roles is always being transparent and always being aware that it was um, a messy and tricky place to be in and always to be intentional about um, being respectful of patients and of research subjects, of their privacy, of only sharing what they, what they gave me permission to um, and of being forthcoming with everybody about my dual roles. And so that was certainly a tricky position to navigate, but um, I think it's something that is, is really critical to be self-reflexive about and not to push it to the side and try um, really hard just to compartmentalize it because that seems easier, um, because that's just not the reality of how, how, things, how things play out on the ground. Yeah, and there's, an uh, I think, an old conversation and discussion in anthropology in general about um, the tensions between observing and intervening um, and that these things cannot be, and that those roles cannot be completely separate. Uh, and there is no such thing as purely observing without 
your presence also being an intervention in any field site. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if there are specific examples, and I know there were scenes in the book where that came up, where you were both anthropologists, but also called on as someone's doctor. And I wonder if there are particular moments where um, that uh, was an issue um, or felt like an ethical predicament as being an anthropologist and a doctor and maybe not wanting to intervene or maybe wanting to intervene. Yeah, well, I remember one night when I was um, at the jail um, as an anthropologist, in my mind, um, and the woman in the book whom I call Evelyn, um, she was about 38 weeks pregnant at the time, and um, she was my patient at the time, um, you know, and in the book I do include information and stories about her pregnancy, but that is information that she um you know, when she stopped being my patient and I approached her about the research study, she, she asked me, she said, please, I want you to include all that, that information and in my story about my pregnancy. But at the time, she was my patient. She wasn't a research subject. But I happened to be at the jail that night doing, you know, research and observations. And she began having contractions. And the protocol would have been to, um, send her to the hospital, um, and for her to be assessed to see if she was in labor. Um, and she, she didn't really want to go to the hospital, um, in part because for some people, while they're incarcerated, going to the hospital can be an embarrassing, humiliating experience because they show up, um, you know, in an orange uniform. Sometimes they, they have chains around them, although pregnant women in California are not supposed to be shackled. Um, and, you know, they have guards surrounding them. So some people don't like to be, um, taken to a hospital while they're, while they're in custody. Um, it's also a logistical hassle. Um, and she also really didn't want to give birth while she was, uh, in custody, um, because she knew she was going to be getting out in a few days to go to a drug treatment center. Um, and she wanted to have her baby when she was outside of jail. And she, so she really, didn't want to risk, you know, them thinking she was in early labor and maybe keeping her. Um, and the nurses also came to me and said, look, doc, you're, you're an obstetrician. Can you just check her cervix, um, and see if she's in labor? Um, and at first I said, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm not here as, you know, in clinic right now. Um, and, um, both the nurses and the patient sort of asked me, and I said, but you're, you're still a doctor. And so I, I, um, I agreed and I, I checked her cervix and she was not in labor and she went back to her cell and, um, didn't have to be transported to the hospital. Um, but it was definitely a moment that was not clear cut for me, uh, where I said, of course I'll take care of you. Um, and in fact, my default response was, um, was no, I'm here as a research right, researcher right now. Um, but again, that speaks to the, um, the messiness of roles and how how the people I uh, was researching had a much easier time sort of um, melding my, my two roles. Um, so there certainly were some some challenges to it. I think another instance, this is not exactly what, what you, where your question um, led, but the way you initially framed it made me think of this, um, and how my presence as a doctor might have affected affected things. I, you know, I, in the book, I, I talk about... Um, more of the surprising aspects of jail that I observed was that, um, you know, and as I briefly mentioned, some of the, the people who work in the jail are 
Um, certain, some of them are abusive and, um, and can be very harsh to the women, but some of them can also show tremendous kindness. And so in the book, I, I describe those interactions and I describe how some women, um, including a woman, um, whose story features throughout the book, I call her Kima, who felt, um, that jail was much safer for them than their, their lives on the street. Um, and even though jail is a place of violence, even though, um, you know, sometimes they would get beat up by guards, they still felt like, um, jail was, was provided a relative measure of safety, of rest, um, and gave them some things that they didn't have in their lives on the street. This was a troubling thing to observe, and it wasn't just observing. The women used those words to me, that jail felt like a safe place and, and where they could rest and refuel. Um, and I did wonder sometimes, though, whether what I observed, the friend, some friendly interactions between guards and incarcerated people, um, some joking interactions, guards sneaking in food for the pregnant women. Um, I, I wondered whether my presence in the jail um, affected how, how the guards act, acted and behaved. Um, and if I could have been a fly on the wall instead of a, um, a person, a human being in the space, um, whether things, whether I would have observed different things. Now I did, it was not all fun and games and kindness all the time. I certainly watched <clears throat> women get yelled at and harassed and dragged out of their cells. Um, but I, I didn't see, um, you know, I, I, I didn't see any, beatings or any, um, extreme violence. Um, and so I, I wondered, you know, was, did my presence affect, um, affect things? And that's something I can never know. And you, you brought that up, um, earlier with, you know, one of the tensions in our, our work as anthropologists and how much observation and intervention, um, how those, those two poles sort of, um, interplay with each other but also how our presence indelibly affects what we observe. It's sort of like um, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in physics um, that you can never fully, um, your presence, uh, you know, can never, uh, will, will alter sort of what you observe and you can never fully measure it because you are part of the measurement yourself. Um, so those are things that I, that I thought about a lot. Um, and, you know, as before with the ambiguity, I don't think there's necessarily, I don't think the task is to resolve that. Um, I think it's to be cognizant of it and to recognize how that might affect things um, and to just, you know, grapple with it head on. Yeah. And speaking of uh, ambiguity, and you've alluded to the this tension between care and violence uh, so far, I want to turn to um, just the title of the book and that term jail care. Uh, that you use a lot in the book, and it's obviously the title. And I want to know what does uh, that word mean for you, um, and how does it help you capture uh, violence and care that you witness and experience? So the the phrase jail care um, emerged as I was doing my research and analyzing the data. And what jail care refers to is this ambiguous mix of care and violence in the very same place by the very same people, and that people like Kima and Evelyn can feel cared for and can feel safe in 
in an institution of incarceration, which is fundamentally an institution of violence. Um, and um, is that jail care is, is intended to capture that contradiction. And it also signals the contradiction of, of for instance, the constitutional right to health care, that part of the violence of incarceration is, is stripping people of their rights and their sense of self and, and autonomy, and yet you give them this right um, to health care that the prisoner jail is mandated, is obligated to provide for um, their, their health care needs. Um, and so jail care refers to those contradictions. Um, what it also signals is, um, and this is the, the subtitle as well, but it's folded into the term jail care. Um, jail care is also not only a description of this fundamental tension that exists within institutions of incarceration, but it's also a diagnosis of the failures of our broader society. If people can feel cared for and relatively safe, and safer in jail than they might be on the streets, that says a lot about their lives outside of jail. If pregnant women feel, some pregnant women feel that, that jail is the only place where they can get prenatal care, then we are failing them. Then something outside of jail is failing them because people should not have to go into an institution of incarceration um, in order to feel cared for. And so jail care signals not only what's happening inside the jail, this this mix of, of care and violence that it, that's braided together, but it also indexes the failures of, a, of broader society. And this is part of the reality of mass incarceration. And it's, um, you know, there is a lot written about, um, not just written, but argued about, there's a lot of activism and policy um, scholarship about mass incarceration and um, its origins, its legacies with um, with slavery and institutionalized racism in our country, um, its economic roots, its its means of of managing poverty, um, so many things about mass incarceration, um, and yet part of the everyday reality is that it also provides health care and other forms of care for people on margins of society, and that's a very troubling thing to think about. And so jail care is all about that ambiguity and all about that everyday, some of the, these everyday realities of mass incarceration. Um, and um, it, it, you know, this is what appears throughout the book. And even the word itself um, is, is sort of a, a mashup between something that, that many of us implicitly think of as violent, jail, and care. Um, and so it, it sort of brings those, those two things in direct um, contact with each other and, and pushes us to think about the ways that violence and care are in some ways always, always connected to each other. Right. And um, you begin the book describing uh, how that came to be, and you alluded to it already, but I was wondering, can you elaborate on how it came to be that uh, the only place in the U.S. where healthcare is a right is inside uh, carceral settings. Uh, what was that Supreme Court case uh, that happened that gave us that? So the Supreme Court case is Estelle versus Gamble, and um, it started in Texas. Um, prisoner J.W. Gamble, who actually was the defendant in the case, but he injured his back um, doing labor on a Texas... Um, plantation prison, um, or a prison farm that was still in operation then. 
Um, and he, he claimed that, um, his back injury, um, was so debilitating he couldn't work. And then he was subsequently punished for not working. And he, he also, he also claimed that he was not getting adequate medical attention and ended up, um, the, the case in part because of the repeated disciplinary actions against him. Um, the case, you know, went through the court system and eventually made it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, they actually found that in his particular case, um, he, they deemed that he did get adequate medical care. But they used his case as a platform um, to say, and these are the di- direct words of Justice Thurgood Marshall, who wrote the majority of, of uh, the majority opinion. And he said, quote, the deliberate indifference to the serious medical needs of prisoners, end quote, is basically is cruel and unusual punishment and therefore a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And so from that moment on, prisons and jails have been constitutionally mandated to provide health care to people inside. Now, um, a constitutional Supreme Court mandate is one thing, but how that plays out on the ground is another thing. And those phrases, deliberate indifference and serious medical needs, lack specificity. And so since then, since this 1976 case, um, what we've seen is um, a, a tremendous amount of, um, of variability and adaptation and interpretation of what this means and how it plays out in the everyday world of providing health care to people who are incarcerated. And what I observed um, is that the way that healthcare providers in a jail decide what kind of healthcare they should be providing, you know, in some cases it's it's you know written in the jail's policies, but it but it gets activated in the you know the individual triaging decisions that jail healthcare providers make. Should does this patient need pain medication? Um, this patient does not take their their insulin for their diabetes when they're on the streets, do they need it here? The answer to that latter question about diabetes was always yes. Um, but what, what got folded into their assessments, um, which were rooted in, again, in this ambiguity, but it was fundamentally a balance or perhaps even a tension between what is the state's role and what is this carceral institution's role in caring for the people inside, people who, you know, by virtue of their incarceration, cannot just call up their doctor or go to a hospital or go to a clinic. So what is the state's obligation to care for these people whom it has decided to incarcerate? Balanced with what is what you know, do healthcare providers and, and other jail workers, what do they assess as the as the sort of deservingness, the health-related deservingness of the people they see in front of them? And part of how they reckon that has to do with um, you know, them in some ways resisting, trying to resist the criminal identity that um, gets sort of slapped onto their patients by virtue of being in, in the jail. But it also gets, what, what also gets folded in is thinking about, okay, when they're on the streets, when they're in the community, I know this person isn't going out of their way to go to the doctor, um, and so, you know, do they deserve to get all of this health care while they're here in jail? And these are some of the tensions and questions that I saw healthcare providers, maybe not using those exact words, but but reckoning with as they made their their triaging decisions um, as they were treating patients. What I will also say, also say on the less everyday level and the more 
um, institutional level is because those phrases deliberate indifference and serious medical needs are so, so vague, um, every prison and jail has its own system, its own interpretation of what counts as a serious medical need. At some places, they consider a serious medical need just, you know, something that would threat, it, cause an immediate threat to your life or health. And they sort of view their role, their healthcare role as just making sure no one dies behind bars. And then there are other places, the San Francisco jail being one of them, that have a very broad vision of health that includes a public health and preventative health vision um, that sees, you know, the importance of providing um, community standard of care, not just for acute issues, but for chronic medical conditions and for preventative health care as well. Um, in addition to um, the lack of national standards, um, you know, and, and just the, these phrases, serious medical needs and deliberate indifference, what you also have is that there's no accountability. There's no mandatory oversight of healthcare facilities and prisons and jails. And so that while there are some organizations that accredit um, healthcare facilities in jails and prisons, that accreditation is completely optional. Um, and the majority of, of facilities are not accredited. Um, and so, so this means that in some ways the, the most, uh, or the, the accountability system is the legal system. When, um, when there are lawsuits brought against prisons and jails, um, for inadequate healthcare or for deliberate, what is deemed to be deliberate indifference to serious medical needs. But that's retroactive when something has happened. And this lack of accountability, this lack of standardization, um, it, it's reflective more broadly of how our society treats and thinks about, or more accurately doesn't think about, um, people who are behind bars. Thank you for that. Um, and now we're dealing with uh, the consequences of that long and complex uh, history and, and, and how to go forward. And I'd love to ask you more about that um, in the end, if we have time, about how to move forward given the situation. Um, but I just wanted to pause a little bit and comment that, you know, one of the things that of the many things you do really well in the book is you give us so many great ethnographic details about how people move through the jail, how they get triaged, which you described a little bit, the documents, uh, the documentation, the, the forms that allow people to negotiate um, getting care, getting recognition, um, and other things that you call uh, micro techniques of care, like pill call. And I'm wondering if you can describe um, the micro techniques of, of care that, that you saw in the jail, um, perhaps pill call or another one that demonstrates um, jail care. Yeah, pill call is an excellent example of that. Um, and um, so the logistical basis of what's called pill call is that prisoners, uh, incarcerated people generally are not given their medications to take on their own. Um, nurses and other healthcare providers do directly observe therapy where they hand them, um, each dose of their medication when it's due. And, um, nurses will, will go to the housing units and hand deliver a pill to every person who's, who is due for a pill. And, um, this, uh, routine, this is very regimented. It, it plays out in different ways at each jail and prison. There's, you know, there are different variations. But, but every jail or prison has some system like this um, because 
somebody needs to control the resources and, and the distribution of medications. And so because it's a jail, um, there are certain things that, uh, and because they're in a jail, there's also a certain mistrust in a way of the, the people who are incarcerated. There's a certain ritual that happens after the nurse hands um, uh, an incarcerated person their pill, which is the incarcerated person has to demonstrate that she has not is not hoarding the medication in her cheek. Um, because if she does that, then she can go back to her cell, spit out the medication, reconstitute it, and um, especially if it's something like an opiate medication, she can um, sell it to other incarcerated people. Um, and it's not just opiates, there are other medications too that might have some, some, <coughs> some value. And so what happens after a person um, takes, puts their pill in their mouth is they have to turn, they turn away from the nurse and they turn towards the, the guard and they open their mouth up and they lift their tongue all around, they show their cheeks and they prove to the guard that there is nothing left in there. And it's, it's, um, uh, it's an infantilizing um, moment in a lot of ways and it reminds um, the patients that they are also prisoners um, and that they are not trusted. And so this ritual, this regiment, regimented ritual of pill call <clears throat> reminds everybody that, you know, yes, we may be providing medical care, but we're doing so in this space of punishment. But what, where, where there are micro techniques of care, where there are these interventions, um, are things like how some of the nurses interact with patients on pill call. Now, some of them are very much are very businesslike and, and minimize any conversation with patients. But then there are others who will ask, you know, oh, how are your children doing? Um, because they've known these patients for many years. They've known them coming in and out of jail. Um, and they might offer a smile as they hand the pill to the patient. Hey, I hope you feel better. Now that gesture um, is something that, you know, outside of a jail might seem quite unremarkable and in some ways expected of of a healthcare provider, um, but in a jail, that micro that that act of um, smiling and saying feeling better, it um, it provides them with a sense of dignity and recognition that, in some ways, counters the you know having to open your mouth and say ah and show your show that you're not cheeking anything, um, and that's that that kind of recognition um, is itself a form of care and what I call a micro technique of care because it's a very small, short gesture um, that can um, can intervene on on the routines um, and assumptions of, of the carceral system. And yeah, and it seems like it's a big component of how uh, all the different actors in this setting are negotiating the ambiguity of the space of the, the violence and the care. Um, and it, and it, even though you describe um, and you discuss ambiguity specifically, I think mostly in the third chapter, but it clearly pops up through the entire book of how people are playing with both physical and social proximity and distance all the time um, in relating to one another. Um, and I want to turn, I know we've been talking for a long time, we don't have a, much, a ton of time left, but I do want to turn to the second half of the book in which uh, you focus more on the women's experiences um, and their perceptions of how things are, uh, how they're experiencing getting pregnant in and out of the jail. Um, and 
I wanted to ask you specifically in chapter six, when you talk about um, motherhood and sort of managing of emotions and producing a certain kind of motherhood in the jail. And I I wanted to ask what you mean by the term carceral desire uh, in that setting. So as you know, I talked a little bit about um, already about two women I came to know quite well, Evelyn and Kima. Um, There are many other women who, um, who were part of my research who are in the book, but um, these two women, their, their stories feature them most prominently, and they both were pregnant while in jail. They both were already mothers, um, and these were were women who knew what to expect from jail because um, they had been in and out of jail since they were eighteen. And Kima, she and her attorney once counted, and she was twenty nine, uh, or yeah, twenty nine um, at the time, twenty nine years old. Um, and she and her attorney had counted that she had been in and she had been in jail. Um, over 80 times in her adult life already. Um, and so she knew what to expect. Um, she knew that jail was a place where she, you know, as I said, would feel a little safer than she did wow. on the streets. Um, she knew that jail was a place where she would have walls to hang pictures of her baby, um, her baby whom she gave birth to while she was in custody. And these were walls she didn't have on the streets. And so... Kima also was very clear that she hated jail. She um, didn't like how many of the guards treated her. She didn't like the, you know, she, she often got into fights with some of the other incarcerated women. And yet she also recognized um, that she had some desire to be in jail at times and, and that um, it gave her a rest, um, it gave her refueling. And she even said to me on a number of occasions, she said, you know, I don't like to say this, but my my worst day in jail is way better than my best day on the streets. Um, and then she would go on to tell me just how hard her life is on the streets um, and why there is that contrast. And so, um, and similarly, Evelyn, when she was in her third trimester of pregnancy, she had already been in jail a couple of times, um, but was was on the streets again. And she felt like she was just at this really low point. Um, and she had gotten beaten up by someone on the streets a few days earlier. She was using drugs. She didn't have a, a place to sleep. She had a hard time finding food. Um, and she ended up turning herself in to the cops on the corner on a charge. You know, she said, I have an outstanding warrant. Arrest me. You should arrest me. Um, and so, and it's because she knew what to expect in jail in, in some ways, um, that she would get prenatal care. She knew the people who worked in the jail. Um, and again, she didn't, this didn't mean that she loved jail, that she, um, that it's this ambiguous desire, um, which again is, is in a lot of ways diagnostic of the failures of society and of the social safety net. If someone could feel that jail is relatively, um, someone's worst day in jail is better than their best day on the streets. Um, and so, that the term carceral desire um, really indexes again that ambiguity that people sometimes had this desire for for jail at the same time that they they hated it, um, and that's what some of the pregnant women experienced. Not all of them, by any means, but but certainly something that I observed among among some of the pregnant women. And I think, given that. Um, experience that some women have um, desiring jail and seeing it as home, which is another um, 
concept that you unpack a lot in the book. Uh, it seems like it's possible to read this book and uh, justify a really paternalistic approach to uh, these women or women like them. And so, and I know you don't do that, but I'm wondering um, where do we go from here? How does this work contribute to um, people trying to either end mass incarceration or shift the way that we uh, care for these women? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up and emphasized that I'm I'm not advocating for a paternalistic approach. And I, I want to emphasize that and I want to be clear that um, we should not be incarcerating women or pregnant women, um, especially just so that they can get prenatal care and feel safe. Um, I'm not advocating for a stance that people are dependent on jail. Um, I'm not advocating for... Um, seeing jail as as a, a pleasant place to be it is still jail um but what um what i what i learned from my research and from these women and the people who work in jail is just how connected our carceral institutions are to everything else that's going on in society and so the response to these findings is not to make jails harsher so that people don't feel, you know, this carceral desire. That is not the answer. And in fact, we should still, we should be working to ensure that, um, healthcare standards are, are at play in jails and that people are getting standard healthcare, which is not the case at jails and prisons across the country. Um, I'm also, um, not advocating, as I mentioned, for the, the stance of incarcerating pregnant women to keep them and their fetuses safe. Not at all. We should not be criminalizing pregnant women, especially pregnant women who use drugs and need mental health care treatment. But instead, I think what this research should activate us is to work towards, um, work towards change in the system. And there's no one magic bullet for dismantling mass incarceration. There are many, many pieces. Um, one big piece of this, which is not part of, um, which did not emerge from my research, but um, is something that is absolutely part of other research and policy recommendations, is sentencing reform. Um, and this this will, would really impact um, prison populations. And here I, is where the distinction between jail and prison comes into play, and the, the research, the specificity that my research took place at a jail is important. Jails are under county jurisdiction, and um, people go to jail first uh, when they get arrested. And um, in fact, the majority of people in our nation's jails um, are pre-trial, meaning they have not been convicted of anything. And most of those pre-trial detainees in jail are there because they cannot afford their bail even a bail that might not seem very high to you and me, they just cannot afford. And that is why our jails, which are part of the community, they are located in our cities, in our counties, in our communities. That is one of the biggest contributing factors to why our jails are overcrowded. And so I think one of the most important steps is uh, in depopulating our jails is comprehensive bail reform. And you know what, we've already seen some places take the lead on this. Cook County in Illinois, um, their sheriff, Sheriff Dart, recently instituted a policy um, where certain pretrial detainees who are there for nonviolent charges, if they are simply there um, because they cannot afford their bail, are 
um, going to be released um, on their own recognizance. Um, and he also recently, I think this is um, this approach to alternatives to incarceration um, is especially important for pregnant women, um, and most of whom, again, are there for nonviolent charges. Um, and um, Cook County has also led the way in um, releasing pregnant women who are pre-trial um, and in their third trimester of pregnancy so that um, they don't have to give birth while, while in custody. Um, so bail reform, investing in alternatives to incarceration, um, these are essential components to a broader strategy of, of um, reforming our current system of mass incarceration. But it must also come with a greater investment in the social and medical safety net. Um, and so that, so that women like Evelyn and Kima feel cared for in the community and have opportunities in the community as well. Um, and finally, while we are working for, towards this broader system change, we must ensure that for that time that people are inside, we cannot forget about them and they deserve dignified standard of, of care, health care. There are a lot of strategies and, you know, I think what I learned from this research and from this book is that um, the connections between jail and the community and rest of the rest of society are deeply entangled and that we are all part of the system and that we all must act as well. Great. Well, we've taken up so much time today. I want to thank you so much for your time, Carolyn. Um, this is really rich and wonderful, but devastating work to read. And it's been such a privilege to watch it unfold over time. And I'm really excited to see what you do next. Thank you so much, Dana. There are so many stories of women in the book that we didn't get to talk about. Klima, Evelyn, Alicia, and so many other women who experienced pregnancy, delivery, and early motherhood in and out of custody, as well as other coercive state institutions. Dr. Severin handles these complex, heartbreaking stories with such care and insight. I encourage anyone concerned about the state of our vanishing safety net and about the consequence of mass incarceration for women and families to read her book. It's a work of true public anthropology. What inspires me personally about this work is that it demonstrates what is possible when you insist as a physician on practicing within a highly ambivalent place while committing as an anthropologist to understand it deeply, historically, culturally, and politically. So Dr. Seferin is definitely one of my heroes in medicine and anthropology for this reason. Here she has diagnosed for us a complex syndrome of care in the place of violence and why that came about. But while there are no magic bullets that she offers to this current predicament, she definitely gives us a way to reimagine the relations of power and care and offers a way to chip away at that culture of incarceration. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation and will join us next time for new books in medicine. Take care.